Hi, welcome back to the 10th episode of Secrets and Sins. We're your hosts for the day. I'm Megan Wilburn. And I'm Mitchell Evans. And today we'll be talking about the resurgence of the Gothic, Victorian houses, Gothic tourism, and the coronavirus. But first... Spoiler alert! This just in! This podcast will later discuss and spoil the content and plot of Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express and recent hit movie Knives Out. You have been warned. Enjoy! So first we're going to talk about the resurgence of the gothic. In order to get us into this theme, I'm going to ask you a would you rather, Mitch. Okay. Would you rather be a survivalist during the 2012 Mayan calendar panic or a hypochondriac in the year 2020? I think survivalist just because the world didn't end and therefore I kind of don't have to worry about that. But with the coronavirus today, I would not be able to leave my house just out of fear that I could catch something. And even after everything could blow over, I could still probably have that fear that I would catch it somehow, you know? Well, in terms of the resurgence of the Gothic, this primarily occurs during periods of upheaval, as we know. So we see, for example, a beautiful Gothic surge in English writing during the fall of the British Empire. People had to come to terms with and release their fears for the future. In a previous episode of this podcast, which was titled Make Vampires Gay, You Cowards, I believe, several Netflix shows from around 2015 were discussed. 2015 and the years just prior made up a period of unrest for a variety of reasons, I mean, at the time we were seeing Ferguson riots, and then we got a Dracula remake, the California drought, and then a petty dreadful Netflix series, school shootings, and then Crimson Peak. What else have we seen this decade? Movie-wise, we've been seeing a lot of things. Starting from 2004, Van Helsing, one of, honestly, my favorite movies, kind of brings in everything that classic gothic had to offer. Vampires, werewolves, ghosts. I think there's a Frankenstein in there too. I might be wrong about that. But I think we as a society kind of like the idea of the Gothic because later on in this decade, we started to do more things like The Women in Black, which is a haunted Victorian house movie. The Shadows, which is more of a comedic vampire movie. And then we did The Murder on the Orient Express, which is an Agatha Christie adaptation. We also have Knives Out which is another mystery genre movie. That one's interesting because it kind of flips the whole dynamic. It kind of creates a mystery out of out of something that wasn't really a mystery in the first place, out of a crime that really shouldn't have happened. Yeah, I think what I really liked about that is it kind of picked apart how these mystery novels and like mystery movies are made by starting it in the moment. And then as we go along into the movie, we kind of rewatch this whole thing, turn on its heel and become itself, if you know what I mean. It dismantled the form that the mystery genre typically takes place in. Yeah. So why do we think we've been seeing this resurgence then? I personally think we've been seeing it just because people are interested in this sort of thing, especially with the murder mysteries. There is this kind of idea that the viewer or reader themselves get to determine and figure out who the killer is before it's revealed to them. And I think that this sort of dynamic is what really entices people. Like with the murder on the Orient Express, we're given all these facts about who these people are, what their possible motive might have been. And so then it's up to us to kind of figure out who the murderer themselves are before it's finally revealed to us. So in terms of the murder on the Orient Express, 
we find that the killer is really a group of killers and it's sort of a, a justice killing, more or less. Whereas in terms of Knives Out, which is a much more recent film, which I don't believe is based on any book, it's just a work of this age, that murder is actually an unnecessary and accidental suicide. I think there's something a lot darker and a lot less resolved about that emotionally. So for those of you who might not have seen Knives Out, it's a modern 2019 murder mystery classically set in a Victorian mansion. It deals with difficult subjects such as suicide, guilt, inheritance, classism, and even briefly with immigration. So what do you think it does to that work that the ending really plays with the line between what is mystery and what is gothic? Yeah, I think that the feeling of unease is definitely that point where we kind of started this and we're watching this from the perspective of him being murdered to only find out that he wasn't murdered. He committed accidental suicide, basically. This idea that his death wasn't necessary, I think, is what leaves people unsettled. Exactly. Mystery and gothic can start the same way. They can start with some sort of trauma or some sort of extreme event, a murder or something like that. And then the end is where it really disconnects. There tends to be a clearer ending with a mystery novel in which some detective uncovers some criminal and there's a sense of resolution. Whereas in music terms, there's a sort of dissonance that exists at the end of Knives Out still, where your criminal is caught and your detective is still there, but somehow it didn't leave me feeling resolved. It left me feeling very upset. There was a suicide of an old man who didn't need to die, who seems to have been a fairly good person or trying to be a good person. They, they kind of encourage the watcher into a sense of appreciation and endearment towards this man. So that's where the, the bridge between the gothic and the mystery sort of comes in there. But do you have any, any theory or any opinion on perhaps why it is that way? I mean, in this day and age, this time that we're living in, instead of creating a pure mystery through and through, the authors, the producers, the people who engaged in creating this film decided to really straddle that line and sort of break the mold of the traditional genres. And I was just curious if you had any potential insight into why that might be. Yeah, I think it is just the idea that in classical mystery literature, we don't usually get any afterthought from that. Whereas in this movie, the movie kind of continues going on and resolves itself past the point of finding out who the actual killer is and what actually happened. It really, I believe, extends the idea of the mystery. Right. And I think immigration is another key point that we should talk about with this movie in terms of the main character's mother is an illegal immigrant. And I also think it's interesting that several times throughout the story, we see different interrogations occur in which members of the family are asked to describe this main character who is the nurse and suggest a little bit about her character and each time she is referred to by one of these characters in an interrogation. She is given a home country, which is different. I just find that a particularly compelling component of this movie. Yeah, I think it's interesting that they treat her. The nurse's name is Marta. They treat her as though she's family. When the family thinks that they're going to get their father's inheritance, they treat her as one of their own, but they don't actually know anything about her, where she's from, where she went to school to get her nursing certificate. 
I think it all comes down to the idea of classism. And they see her as in sort of just this middle class worker who they don't actually need to connect with. So I think that the idea that they don't really know anything about her kind of shows this divide. But once they find out that she's actually getting the inheritance that they were all supposed to get, they kind of turn on her because in their mind, she's not really part of the family and they've all kind of fabricated that. Right. There's sort of this fundamental disconnect that this movie highlights between the classic separation of the haves and the have-nots. And as soon as the haves and the have-nots switch, in this case, there's a rebellion that, of course, the family never would have liked for Marta to do had the switch never occurred. And I think it's particularly interesting and modern that they allow this character, they allow Marta to be the daughter of an illegal immigrant who is currently illegally living in the United States. And they show to some extent what that means for her and what that means for her life and her allowable visibility. Because in order to protect her family, she has to she has to make herself smaller. She has to make herself less than. But as soon as she might be having the inheritance, the family offers to protect her mother and in fact to even use lawyers and resources and money to get her out of this situation, which really goes to show the modernity and the realism behind this genre, which I think mystery and the gothic both have a tendency to do. So Knives Out was set in a giant Victorian mansion of sorts. So that can bring us to our next point of the Victorian house. And we'll start that off with another Would You Rather. So would you rather stay in a haunted mansion or in a castle that's far away from civilization? Hmm. Honestly, I think that's an easy one. I would much rather stay in the castle far from civilization. I think that kind of connects back easily to this topic of the Gothic as the Victorian mansion is something that I consider to be scary. And when you add the word haunted in front of it, I have a lot of pictures from popular media and stories as close to my hometown as Iowa. And I I don't want any part of that. But castles, there's been some level of romance and romanticization inherent in that sort of architecture. And so I think I would definitely choose that one. I want to expand on that. One of the points that I have for the Victorian house is the fabricated idea of what it is. So they're built up to be this thing that they're not. Right. Like at one point, they were just a house. Yeah, they were just a house. And then I think it's the idea of the house itself is then what brings in all these other things. Because at the time period that these were all built, everyone thought they were like this amazing, beautiful piece of architecture. But as time went on and stories were created, suddenly this beautiful house is now something that is full of secrets and you don't really know what it holds. Right. I noticed in my research that the era of the sinister Victorian house didn't really begin until around the 1930s. And that was when the Victorian became something perverse, something monstrous, something to be hated. But one element of this I traced back to the famous architect of that time, Frank Lloyd Wright, who began to create homes that were spacious and open and light, something more along the lines of the modern homes that we still see today, where open floor plans are pretty coveted. And I think that's one element of this. The Victorian houses, perhaps in reality, but also surely in the minds of the people, became these moth-bitten, abandoned, sunken and ghastly versions of their former selves 
partially because of the closed doors and the dark fabrics and the locked halls and the room and the space that you can't see. Yeah, like what you said, the floor plan being open versus in the normal Victorian house, there are a lot of rooms and most of those rooms are never used. And so to kind of go back to like this childhood fear that everyone used to have of like the basement, those rooms are never used. So the basement, it's usually dark and the lights are off. And so there's this innate fear that everyone has because that space isn't being occupied. So you don't know what could be occupying that room. Exactly. Fear of what you can't see, of of the unknown beyond the door. And I think that's particularly interesting because it has a carrying element into today in which 2011, I believe, the population of the world hit 7 billion. And these conversations over the past nine years have related a lot to carrying capacity of the earth. And I think in terms of that, space will become much more precious. And there's also something classist and ostentatious about having all this extra space that isn't even in use when others struggle to find a place to live. Yeah, I can see what you're saying there. Like the idea of where we're going is more towards smaller interconnected homes, I feel, to save space. Right. And I think we'll also see a surge in people living in interconnected homes, whether they want to or not, over the next few decades, which is just going to further serve to antiquate and gothicize the past and the Victorian. So now we are going to segue into our third point about gothic tourism and fright sites with one more would you rather. So Mitch, would you rather spend a night in the LaLaurie Mansion in New Orleans, Louisiana, or take a walk through Japan's suicide forest? I would do the mansion hands down just because, again, this idea of the unknown as terrifying. In a mansion, I know roughly what I'm getting. You know, there's rooms, there's kitchens. It's a house, basically. Whereas in a forest, it's a large open space. I don't know what is in it. And so I feel that sense of terror comes from the unknown. And it's said that that suicide forest is also haunted. So not only am I have a fear of what I know could be in the forest, there's also this idea of what I don't know is in there. And to go off of the idea of the unknown, I think that is something that people strive to kind of find with gothic tourism now that's going on. A funny example of that would be like pumpkin patches that all of them have haunted houses. I think people have this desire to kind of be scared, but have it be sort of a controlled fear. Like with haunted houses, we know that nothing in there can actually hurt us. We still like the thrill of being scared. Exactly. In terms of the two examples I had in that, would you rather the LaLaurie Mansion in New Orleans, Louisiana, gained an increasing level of fame from American Horror Story's third season, Coven, and it's now worth about $3.5 million to own. It's the site where a woman named Delphine may have tortured and killed many slaves in her attic. And so I believe that one element of this controlled fear is that the kind of people who like to watch American Horror Story, especially when it's in its first seasons, is the kind of person who desires that controlled fear. And then after being introduced to something that's that's somewhat real and that exists and that they could travel to within the United States, you could just go to New Orleans, 
there seems to be some level of draw into how close can I get to this thing that scares me without dying or without being overtaken. And I think you see that as well in the suicide forest, but in a little bit different light. I mean, there's a modern U.S. popularity with that forest due to a 2016 movie called The Forest in which a girl goes to the suicide forest in Japan in search for her twin sister who disappeared there. And then shortly after that movie, famous YouTuber Logan Paul also visited Suicide Forest and because of his insensitive comments and a few potentially harmful shots of what could be a body in the background, there was sort of an internet uproar. And I think this also really highlights the power of this gothic tourism to draw in crowds and to captivate the mind in a very specific way that translates directly into economic benefit for different regions around the world. I liked your points there. Something that I picked up on while you were speaking was this idea of captivating the mind, which is in itself what gothic tourism is. I think that is what people strive to create for others. Like I know that near my hometown, they started to do this thing around Halloween where you ride around on a bus and you take a paintball gun and you start shooting people who are dressed up like zombies. So it's simulating zombies zombie killing or zombie hunting, I should say, just because that is, again, with this idea of the fantastical and gothic rising, people have this interest to interact with those ideas. Yeah, I agree that there's sort of this sense of a desire to kind of find these outlets. I mean, we've seen in the release of the Chernobyl documentary recently, there's been a 40% increase in tourism to the site of Chernobyl, which can be actually dangerous and have physical ramifications on the body, but even still people are going. And I think that's particularly interesting because just now, this year, we have entered a new era in which the Gothic has come to us in the form of the coronavirus. And I think that's a good transition into our next point. So as our final point in this podcast, Mitch and I wanted to address something that we can't look at in retrospect yet, something that's a little bit more futuristic. And here in 2020, we have all been confronted with the coronavirus pandemic. And I have a feeling that this is going to have a drastic impact on the Gothic. I mean, some of the tropes of the Gothic, some of the key themes of the Gothic include infection and isolation include death and global or large-scale trauma. It includes financial risk and crime and lack of resources, and we're seeing all of these things now. So I think it would be interesting for us to just take a couple of minutes and muse upon different ideas or different ways in which the Gothic might capitalize on some of these fears in order to provide the world right now escapism into something that isn't what we are truly living, while simultaneously profiting off of our fears from what is really around us. Yeah, to go off that idea of kind of what is really around us, tying in with isolation, this would be a good example if somebody would kind of use a similar affliction in like a novel or a movie where somebody is forced to stay in their place of residence. And this idea of isolation can 
then turn your surroundings against you, where this is a place where you once lived and that you would spend time with people and it was like an open and inviting place is now sort of your own prison, I would say. And in that isolation, you could start to feel uneasy and it could be a build towards a haunting of the mind. Like the people who could be in your place with you are the ghosts in your mind as you live in that place alone. Or even perhaps if you're living in an apartment and the only contact with humans that you get is by hearing your neighbors through the walls just existing in their lives. Perhaps like you hear them take down a pan to cook something or turn on the TV and you're sort of trapped in this bubble where you know that there is life around you. You know that there's social solace around you, but you just can't quite reach it. Yeah, the idea about the apartment, not only are you alone, but you're also surrounded by others who are also in this same situation as you. So you're all relatively close together, and yet you can't interact with them. And as we're doing some of this creative thinking, I can even begin to picture sanitary masks, you know, like the type that are completely sold out at the grocery stores right now. I'm picturing those as sort of a symbol of like the next black plague, almost like the bird beak masks that you've seen in pictures that are kind of horrific in and of themselves because they're associated with so much death. And the idea of something as simple as a sneeze could have the danger of seriously harming or even ending your own life. Back then during the Black Plague, for example, people would cough up blood and so they would start to burn their family members' bodies on the spot basically to make sure that they didn't get infected. A sense of paranoia that overtakes the bonds between people to the point where you're willing to sacrifice someone else to protect what could be dangerous to you. And perhaps this is the way that the resurgence of Gothic will continue to fester and infect us all through various media outlets. We'll leave all of you to continue musing on the Gothic inside everything. Until next time, I'm Megan Wilburn. And I'm Mitchell Evans. Thank you for listening. Good night. And in case you're listening to this at any other point in the day, still have a good night. Good night. I don't know. I panicked.